Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court leak, the Fed, and Sri Lanka. So the country was lit ablaze on Monday night when Publico pre, uh, published a report that contained a leak draft of the Supreme Court's majority opinion on the Dobbs abortion case in front of them right now. So uh, the Dobbs abortion case was uh, is you know set to be released. The opinion is set to be released this summer, and Publico released a leaked. A version of the majority opinion, or what is supposed to be the majority opinion. The opinion was written by Alito, Justice Samuel Alito, and was joined, by, according to the article, by Kavanaugh, Barrett, Thomas, and Gorsuch. They all signed on to the opinion, and in the opinion, uh, the opinion overruled and overturned Roe v. Wade. So what this means, and this is important to point out, this is a first draft. Okay, this is a first draft of the opinion. Uh, what that means is that this is not the official opinion. It is not the official opinion. I cannot emphasize that enough. Okay, this was. It is not an official opinion until the Supreme Court publishes the opinion, and that is usually on the Supreme Court website, and that is usually in uh, summer, uh, by kind of around the end of June would be when they would release this. So this lit the world ablaze because it's a big deal, uh, but uh, it is not official. I just want to continue to re-emphasize that. However, what would that mean for Roe v. Wade to be overturned? Well, what that would mean is that abortion would be determined by the states. So if you live in New York, Illinois, and uh, California, you would uh, probably still have access to an abortion. Those states would not get rid of abortion. It would probably codify in law uh, access to abortion in some way. Um, they would kind of determine the terms. In other states, maybe Georgia, uh, Alabama, and Tennessee, uh, the uh, abortions would be illegal. They would make abortions illegal. But nonetheless, what, what the core issue is, is that the states will decide, the state legislatures will decide what uh, the abortion policy in that state will be. If I had to guess, most states will end up somewhere in the middle. Uh, so they will end up with maybe in the first trimester, uh, an abortion is legal in the state. After the first trimester, though, in the second and third trimester, abortions are illegal. That seems to be where most of the polling has Americans and their views on abortion. So that would probably be where most states ended up. In terms of the leak, this leak is a huge deal. I was stunned when I saw that a leak, not just a leak from the Supreme Court. So to give you some perspective on how rare leaks from the Supreme Court are, most of the time, leaks happen every decade or so. Like years go by between leaks from the Supreme Court. It never happens. On top of that, it never happens. It has never happened that I know of where a majority opinion has been in, leaked in its entirety from the Supreme Court. So this is a massive deal. And this is a massive deal because the Supreme Court as it's, as an institution relies on the ability for justices to think, to deliberate, to argue, to write down thoughts, to erase thoughts, to change thoughts in uh, the privacy of the chambers, uh, of, of their own chambers. If everything that they were releasing and saying and writing and was getting released to the public, then the pressure on the court whenever they thought something, the, the amount of smearing that would happen when a, a, you know, a judge wrote something down and then you know, wouldn't normally erase it later because you know, they realized that they were mistaken or you know, whatever, the deliberative process would be ruined. So this is a massive breach in trust at the Supreme Court. I cannot overstate that enough. 
That said, Chief Justice Roberts called for uh, an investigation over the leak, so he acknowledged that it was a uh, the uh, a genuine opinion, and he called for the investigations uh, over the leak to figure out who leaked it, um, and called for the the court, the Supreme Court's marshal, to figure that out. So one of my first thoughts when this came out was, is this even illegal? In fact, I asked one of my friends, you know, is the, is leaking something from Supreme Court even illegal? And um, I'm I. St- don't necessarily know if it is. So from one thing that I heard is uh, it's not necessarily illegal to have leaked the draft. However, if the court's marshal asks if you leaked the draft and you lie and say, no, you did not, because the court's marshal is a federal officer, you would be held liable for perjury. So that would be illegal. But if you came out and admitted it and said, yes, I leaked the draft, then you would probably not be arrested, but you would be disbarred and you would be removed uh, from whatever position you were in. However, you would not have done anything necessarily illegal, which I think is um, you know, kind of interesting. Um, but this is really a big deal. Uh, I'll talk about this a little bit later when I talk about my newsletter, but it's still a draft and it's still early and the official opinion has not been published so far. So um, all of the freakout is, I mean, kind of warranted uh, when we consider how big of a decision this would be, uh, but it's not quite warranted uh, yet as the official opinion will come out probably by the end of June. In other news, the Fed on Wednesday raised interest rates 50 basis points. So again, that is 0.5%. This is the biggest hike in interest rates for the Fed since 2000. Uh, As I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, they almost always raised rates by 0.25% or 25 basis points. Uh, They have not, in the last 20 years, raised it 50 basis points in one meeting. However, in the meeting, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed president, uh, or chairman, also uh, basically took 75 basis point raise in the next meeting off of the table. So there was some skeptic or some uh, you know discussion about whether maybe in the next meeting there'd be a 75 basis point would be which would be you know even more uh, astronomical, and he basically took that off the table. Uh, whether you you know believe he should have taken that off the table is another story. Uh, you can see why he did, but at the same time, you know if inflation gets significantly worse before their next meeting, maybe not take that off the table, but. Uh, he did. Um, they, he also announced that they will start to tighten their balance sheet. So, so the Fed balance sheet, essentially what this means is the Fed can buy treasury notes and or mortgaged-backed securities from the market. They will uh, basically buy, it, buy them uh, from banks. And uh, they, the goal of this is to uh, buy securities to get them off of the market, which will increase the price as the supply has decreased. So to increase the price, which with bonds, when the price is increased, that means the yield on the the bond is lower. And so this is all part of a process called quantitative easing. The Fed has been doing this since 2008, uh, the, since the financial crisis. They, they've been you know doing a lot of quantitative easing. So what this means that the Fed is tightening their their balance sheet, what that means is that now the Fed will start to let the bonds that are on their balance sheet roll off instead of reinvesting into other bonds. So if you have a a two-year bond, you know, I'm just going to make these terms up. If you have a two-year bond and you hold that bond for two years, eventually it comes due and you pay off and you pay the bond and um, now you don't own that bond. Uh, So what the Fed will do 
when they're reinvesting it is they will take the amount that they did have uh, that the bond was worth and they will essentially use it to buy and invest into more bonds. So part of this tightening process is to, instead of taking um, the, the amount of the bond that rolls off and buying more bonds with it, you're, you just let it roll off and you don't buy any more bonds. So theoretically, what this does is this will lead to less bond buying, which is going to increase the amount of supply, which will lower prices and then do the reverse of raising interest rates. So this is all part of the process of lowering inflation. So if we talk about higher interest rates, this is this whole thing is different than the interest rates that the Fed sets. So when I was talking about raising the interest rates 50 basis points, again, that is the overnight lending between banks, the, the rate at which banks lend to one another. What this is, is this is the kind of market, quote unquote, market rate of interest rates and the uh, the, the interest rates of you know, because these interest rates are these bond rates kind of set the market, the market interest rates. And so the this is raising interest rates theoretically across the board uh, with higher interest rates. That means uh, it's going interest and uh, it's going to in, it's going to decrease the demand side of the equation in terms of inflation. So there's supply side that is kind of the supply chain issues that we've talked about. And then there's the demand side, which is the amount of money on the market and liquidity on the market that people can use. So all of this tightening of the balance sheet is to um, kind of get rid of or lower that demand side, which will uh, theoretically uh, lower inflation. Now, the, the Fed is trying to do all of this while also avoiding a recession. And like I have grown so distrustful of the Fed, largely because, you know, six months ago they were telling us that this all this inflation was transitory. They weren't going to do anything about it. They weren't worried about it. And now they're freaking out, raising interest rates, 550 basis points and uh, tightening their uh, balance sheet. So, again, like that leads me to believe that they have no idea what's going on. So the idea that they can lower inflation all while avoiding a recession, I think is absolutely insane. I don't think they'll be able to do that. I think they will probably be able to lower in inflation if they really put their mind to it, but it will cause a recession. We saw this in the 1980s with Paul Volcker as Fed chair. He, you know, that, that the 70s were a time of huge inflation double-digit rates of inflation, and he jacked up interest rates to something crazy like 20%, led to almost an immediate uh, recession, a deep recession. But out of that recession, uh, inflation was killed, and uh, eventually the economy started to boom again. I do not think that it is really possible to have this quote-unquote soft landing that Jerome Powell keeps claiming, or that the Fed keeps saying that they're after, because um it, again, it goes back to the knowledge problem of Hayek. They just don't have the capacity to know exactly how much to raise interest rates to lower inflation, all while avoiding a recession. I don't think it's possible, but they're going to try and probably fail, uh, and we'll either continue to have inflation, or we will uh, inevitably reach uh, a recession in the next year or so. Lastly, for national news, uh, J.D. Vance won the Ohio Republican primary. So J.D. Vance was is a venture capitalist businessman. He went to Yale. He was backed by people like people like Peter Thiel in the race in Ohio. Um, this race has been a super, super MAGA race. Uh, J.D. Vance has been running against Josh Mandel, 
uh, for the vast majority of it. Uh, a recent um, kind of rise with Matt Dolan has added him to the mix as well. Um, and Vance and Mandel were both running for the, the quote-unquote MAGA lane. They were both trying to be as MAGA as possible to basically court the endorsement of uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Vance would eventually get the uh, ad- endorsement from Donald Trump a few weeks ago. I think it was two and a half weeks ago. Um, and it clearly helped because Vance at one point was third in polls and he ended up with 32% of the vote. Mandel had 24% of the vote and then Dolan had 23% of the vote. Matt Dolan was kind of the uh, anti-Trump candidate. It wasn't that he was necessarily anti-Trump as much as he just didn't talk about Trump all that much. So uh, this has been talked about a lot because it's kind of one of those questions of how much sway does Donald Trump still have over the Republican Party. This would say that there's a lot of sway that he has over the Republican Party. However, um, I don't really take this as a consensus on the national condition. So, for example, uh, this may be the conditions of Ohio, that Trump is very popular in Ohio and has a control over the Republican Party in Ohio. But on the other hand, in my home state of Georgia, uh, Brian Kemp is an incredibly popular governor and has uh, is running against uh, David Perdue, who is the MAGA Trump-backed candidate for go- in the Republican primary for governor. And um, Kemp is dominating Perdue in almost every po- poll. Uh, in fact, he's got something like a 30-point lead right now against Perdue, even though uh, you know he is target number one for Trump. So. Again, this may be a bellwether for Ohio and Trump's popularity in Ohio, uh, but that is not uh, the same as Trump's um, in, in, uh, power and sway over the entire Republican Party nationwide. Moving on to international news. So the EU uh, executive body sent member states a proposal. Uh, the proposal would ban the import of Russian refined oil products by year end. Which is a you know pretty stunning reversal because uh, Europe is heavily dependent on Russian oil. Um, they also included in the proposal was uh, adding three more banks, Russian banks, uh, being removed from SWIFT. So when we think about what this means in terms of sanctions on Russia, this would be a pretty big hit, obviously, because Russia is fueled, no, no pun intended, by their uh, oil market. They pump a ton of oil and they sell a ton of oil, uh, which basically supports their entire economy. Some people have joked that Russia is basically a gas station with nuclear weapons. So this would be a pretty big hit economically. Um, however, the likelihood is still up in the air about whether this is going to happen. Uh, when we look at the EU, there are certain EU countries that are more heavily dependent on Russian oil than others. For example, Hungary and Slovakia are very heavily dependent on Russian oil, and they have been wavering. Uh, this is important because if for this proposal to go through, all members, uh, member countries must agree. So, if, uh, so one of those countries, Hungary or Slovakia, could uh, stop the entire proposal from going through. The uh, proposals have continued to be negotiated, and the latest proposals, as of this recording, uh, gave those two countries in particular more time to end Russian uh, imports of Russian oil from instead of year end um, until the end of 2024. So that would be a massive, uh, you know, push of the deadline, basically two years. Um, so there, and, and there's you know still no telling, no word whether they're going to agree to that or not. Uh, this is. Com- particularly of interest because the Hungarian leader, Orban, is seen as being more closely aligned with Putin than other European countries in particular. And so whether he would agree to something like this is doubtful, uh, but you never know. Um, 
and I mean, we don't really know in two years what this war in Ukraine would even look like and how uh, damaging these sanctions would be then for Russia or not. Uh, but it's, it's an important step by Europe nonetheless because, uh, again, this is a, a section, a region of the world that was heavily dependent on Russian oil, and now it is seem, seeming like they want to uh, lo- uh, get rid of their reliance on uh, that uh, commodity. In a similar vein, Finland uh, had more than 3,000 soldiers taking part in a two-week exercise with hundreds of NATO soldiers. So Finland and Sweden are both expected to apply for NATO membership in the next couple of weeks, and this uh, training, these training exercises with NATO soldiers is part of that process. Um, this is a remarkable move in recent years because uh, before the the war, before the invasion of Ukraine, I was talking about how Russia had exposed some div- divisions within NATO. So Germany, particularly early on when it wasn't apparent that Russia, when Russia hadn't invaded yet, they were just building up troops. Uh, Germany was very hesitant to impose sanctions, was very hesitant to do really much of anything because they were so reliant on uh, Russian oil and things of that nature. Uh, They were not sending weapons. They were refusing to uh, be anything but absolutely neutral in the process. And now we look at uh, Germany and their uh, internal and domestic policies have completely shifted and changed from being uh, wanting to stay neutral to now they are incredibly almost leading the charge against Russia. And uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO was, I mean, would have been out of the question before this invasion. It was not even talked about. It wasn't even discussed within those countries. Uh, And now Finland and Sweden Sweden are expected to apply for NATO membership. So instead of, like it happened before the invasion, instead of um, Putin being able to divide up NATO, He's actually unified it and strengthened it. He's strengthened it in that Finland and Sweden would both be very competent and capable and added bonuses to the NATO alliance. Not only that, but countries within NATO, a lot of Eastern European countries, but also countries like like Germany, have been adding to their defense spending. Um, So each NATO country is required to... Um, have uh, to spend roughly, I think it's 2%, maybe it's 3% of GDP on defense spending. Uh, So, um, and a lot of countries hadn't met their requirement. They were not spending at least 3% of their GDP on uh, national defense, on defense spending. However, now most of them are. They've And if they weren't, they've increased their defense spending to get it more in line. So rather than dividing up the uh, block, kind of like I was talking about before the invasion, the invasion has actually led to a stronger NATO than ever before. And potentially with the, the Finland and Sweden uh, actually do join and uh, apply and then are uh, added to NATO, uh, would uh, an expanded NATO, not just a stronger and more unified one. And then in uh, my last bit of international news, I want to go to the country of Sri Lanka. And I know that most of you listening have probably spent an inordinate amount of time thinking and pondering uh, the country of Sri Lanka, um, but that's what we're going to do again today. So uh, Sri Lanka um, is, and for those of you who may not know your geography super well, Sri Lanka is that island country right off the coast of southern India. So you've got India and then you've got a little island that looks like a teardrop. That is the country of Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka owes over $30 billion in foreign debt, which is quite a lot of debt for such a small country. 
And what happened is COVID rocked the country's economy, as it did every country across the world, but it in particular rocked the area of the economy that gives Sri Lanka key sources of foreign currency, particularly tourism. So COVID pandemic, no one is traveling to other countries and no one is traveling to Sri Lanka. That is typically uh, not good for an economy, but it's particularly not good for an economy like Sri Lanka that is reliant on foreign currency being kind of the stable source of currency in which they can then pay off foreign debts. Now, the reason why Sri Lanka has such big foreign debt obligations is because they have very low taxes and very high public sector expenses. And just like uh, your own household budget, if you spend more money than you have, than you take in, than you bring home, you're going to be in debt. And that is no different than Sri Lanka. So what Sri Lanka has been uh, hoping to do uh, is they're hoping to now raise 3 to $4 billion in external funding. They've also halted most payments on foreign sovereign debts. So what that means is uh, they have these obligations, these loans that they owe uh, payment to uh, from uh, all sorts of different countries all across the world, um, particularly with China. And they are refusing to pay them. Uh, they have stopped those payments until they can get their financial situation figured out. Um, with that said, uh, they did and they have formally engaged with the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, to obtain a bailout package in exchange for fiscal reforms, including sovereign debt restructuring. So they basically are seeking a bailout from the international order, from the uh, countries across the world to um, salvage their situation. China in particular is not happy about this because China um, has focused on uh, Sri Lanka as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. What that is, the Belt and Road Initiative, is China has, um, in a sense, uh, their goal is to recreate the Silk Road of the um, 21st century. And they want to, um, what part of that process, and some people have differing opinions on this, but um, I think it's pretty sinister on their half, but they will lend money. Basically, they become predatory lenders to poor countries. So they lend money to countries like Sri Lanka, and they say, you can use this money to build an airport. And Sri Lanka will take it uh, because the interest rates are great on it because it's basically subsidized, government subsidized by the Chinese government. And they'll take these loans, they'll build their airport, and then they will not be able to pay the loans because they can't afford it. And China will then take possession of um, the collateral. So if they if Sri, Sri Lanka builds an airport, they'll take the Sri Lankan airport port uh, in uh, Chinese custody. Uh, they've done this with countries, I believe, like in Ethiopia and in Africa. And so uh, Chinese, the Chinese are not happy that Sri Lanka is looking towards a the IMF, the Western world, for a bailout package. And honestly, I don't know if the IMF should give it to them. I'm, I hate bailouts. I think if a country is dumb with their... Um, finances that they should suffer the consequences of their finances so i would probably not be in favor of an imf bailout but uh the, you know when we're talking about the financial and global systems and economies at scale like whole countries and then you get to take into account political interest and do we want them to then turn to china or china to take them over etc cetera, etc cetera. uh I, I you know i i all of that is valid uh, to think about and to talk about, but it's a it's a pretty bad situation in Sri Lanka, and you know you feel for the Sri Lankans who, um, you know, not did not necessarily do this to themselves. Their government did it to them, um, and I don't know you know how much say they have in their government. I'd have to look into that, but you know you feel for the Sri Lankans whose lives could be very altered all because their government sucks and doesn't know how to spend money. 
or I should say doesn't know how to spend money wisely. And finally, on to the breakdown of the breakdown. This is the section where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, which you can read and subscribe to on Substack. And this week I talked all about the abortion leak from the Supreme Court. And in my newsletter, I make the argument that pro-lifers, conservatives, people in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade should not get ahead of themselves. They should just pump the brakes and they should just you know, wait until the opinion comes out. Uh, my main point is that this is a draft. This is the first draft of the opinion. That means that it will change. Those changes could be massive changes. It could be very small changes. We don't know, and we won't know until the official opinion comes out, so we need to pump the brakes. Now, you can probably say that this is just my cynicism coming out, that this is, you know, the Supreme Court has been unwilling to overturn Roe v. Wade for a long time. Their conservative justice after conservative justice has chosen to not go that route and instead just rule that, you know, certain laws are okay or not okay. So this may be my negativity. It really may be, but it it is just a draft. Um, so when we think about, and, and you know, why I say this is when we think about the Supreme Court and the way that it is made up right now, it is made up by um, what Sarah Isger and I talk about this in the newsletter calls. The, it essentially labels three, three, three. So instead of the typical description of the Supreme Court being a six-three court with six progressives and three, uh, sorry, six conservatives and three progressive judges justices, she says that it's really a three-three court, meaning that you have three progressive justices that would be Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. You have three conservative justices that value institutionalism very highly. So that is people that are, that are justices like Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts. And then finally, you have conservatives that that do not value institutionalism as highly. So that's people like Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito. And what institutionalism means in this context is that they value the institution and the integrity of the court when they make their decisions. So for example, okay, if we talk about this abortion case, what that means is instead of overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, they're going to chip away at it. Okay, So Ro- Roe v. Wade, because the uh, Roe v. Wade has been decided, it is a precedent. And there's a judicial um, idea of stare decisis. And this is really important in terms of Supreme Court uh, precedent um, or ju- um, ju- jurisprudence. What what it means is essentially that because something has been ruled by the court before, that it should be respected. This is largely the argument in favor of stare decisis, is that you know you don't want the Supreme Court flip flopping over you know every year or so, contradicting itself, and then you have this mass confusion of Supreme Court cases that don't have any consistent or coherent logic to them. And so to avoid that. If something has been decided, you let it stay decided that way. Now, this is, uh, you know, this seems reasonable, but what do you do when a case has been decided wrongly? When something has been declared constitutional that is not constitutional, that is very clearly not constitutional, what do you do with that decision? And this is where the conservative justices disagree. There are some conservative justices, the ones that value institutionalism, that say even when a you know a court uh, case was decided wrongly, when there's a wrong opinion by the court, uh, instead of overturning that precedent, we should rather we should just uh, let it. Um, maybe adjust it, maybe narrow the ruling, maybe 
uh, in this instance say that this law is okay because of X, Y, and Z, uh, but we're not going to overturn precedent. And we're going to look, look at the institutional integrity of the court. Whereas the other conservative justices are going to say, no, we're going to decide the case based on whether we think the law is unconstitutional or not, regardless of the consequences of the uh, case that we're deciding. So when we, and I think Sarah Isger is right by uh, describing the court this way, when we think of the court that way, what that means is that the likelihood of a if one of those three conservatives um, justices that like to maintain the inte- in, uh, institutional integrity of the court, that they are could be on the fence about what to do here, right? So they could say, you know, the Mississippi law is okay, but we're not going to ro- overturn Roe v. Wade. We're just going to continue to chip away at how it apply how we apply it. This is the position of, according to reporting, Justice Roberts. Justice Roberts did not sign on the majority opinion because he doesn't think it should be overturned. He just thinks we should say that the Mississippi uh, law is okay, uh, but not overturning a precedent as big as Roe v. Wade. So, I say all that to say, the it will not be because of the leak, or it may not be, it's not necessarily because of the leak, that a conservative justice flips and takes the more narrow route. I do not think that will be solely because of the leak. I can't read their minds, but this would be consistent with their ideology, and we have to keep that in mind. So that's why I say we cannot get over our skis here. We have to pump the brakes and sit back and say, you know, let's see in let's see in June. Let's see in June. Let's see in June because too many times conservatives have been disappointed and it's not because these conservatives go liberal it's usually because they value the institution over the constitution in my opinion for example i think the most institutional integrity the court can have is to rule solely based on whether a law is constitutional or not so if you think roe v wade is unconstitutional then you by will uphold the integrity of the court by ruling that way not by you know playing games and thinking you know what's best for the court and how it's viewed in the public's eyes. And with that, that is the end of the podcast this week. Please like, subscribe, share, do all that you can to make this go far and wide, and I hope that you will return next week.